0: Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Aristotelian Society. It's a pleasure tonight to welcome Beth Lord from the University of Aberdeen, who is going to talk about disagreement in the political philosophy of Spinoza and Rancière. Thank you very much. Um, Well, it's a great honor to be presenting to the Aristotelian Society. Thank you very much for having me. I noticed uh, on a, a quick trawl through the website that there have actually been several papers on the concept of disagreement over the past few years. So it's clearly something that we as a society want to understand better, and perhaps never more so than right now. A few weeks after the referendum on Britain's membership of the EU, I overheard a colleague at the university say, the working class shouldn't be allowed to vote because they're not intelligent enough. Now the comment was made in jest, obviously, But the serious sentiment behind that comment was not altogether uncommon. In the weeks following the Brexit referendum, a lot of educated people expressed the view that the referendum was won by people who are stupid and ill-informed, who don't know what's good for them, and who didn't think through the implications of their vote. A more moderate variant, which quickly became the consensus view, uh, presented the EU referendum result as the uprising of a group of people who were long neglected, left behind and excluded from politics. One week after Donald Trump has won the US presidency, here we are again. We feel outraged at the capacity of the less educated to vote against the interests of their country and the world. And we're told that this situation is explained by a group of people who feel left behind by the so-called forces of globalization. A story has been concocted that blames the irrational poor and that explains away their motivations, ignoring the sizable proportions of middle and higher income voters whose support was crucial for both the Trump and Brexit victories. Now this characterization shows how little we have moved beyond the anxieties of early modern political discourse. That the rational governance to which the social contract gives way can be disrupted by the irrational feelings of the people leading to (coughs) revolution and anarchy is the worry that suffuses the political philosophy of Hobbes and Spinoza, among others. This counter-rational force is seen as a potentiality by some contemporary continental philosophers who uphold the capacity of the people, or the multitude, to effect meaningful political change. According to Jacques Rancière, what is at stake is a challenge to the political order of parts and wholes. A well-ordered community is a whole consisting of subordinate parts. The social contract expresses each part's willingness to be a part. But in the political moment, some part identifies itself with the whole, with the people as such. A part of society presents itself simultaneously as part and as whole of society. And this move disrupts the order of parts and wholes, bringing dissent to community consensus with emancipatory potential. Now, Ranciere has quite a restrictive notion of politics that does not include all or even most struggles for power. He argues that politics, strictly speaking, exists only in those moments when a part of society identifies itself with the whole. This is not a matter of one part taking power from another, but of a part refusing to be a part, thereby exposing the flaws in the existing social order. So he cites the example of Jeanne de Rouen, who, in attempting to vote in a French election in 1849, revealed the contradiction between the law of universal suffrage and the exclusion of women from voting. Derun asserted that women are not a part of the people that can be excluded or included according to the rules of the current government, but that prior to any rules, women are the people. So it's not a matter of demanding equal rights for the excluded part but of asserting that the excluded part is not a part at all. Rossier calls this assertion disagreement. So clearly this is not a disagreement between rational positions or an objection to particular laws or rules. It is rather a declining to agree about what constitutes social order, dissent over the logic of parts and wholes that underlies the very notion of political community. Now, this all may seem quite a long way from early modern philosophy, which, after all, is heavily invested in the political logic of parts and wholes. Spinoza understands the political community as a whole made up of identifiable parts, and he understands justice to be the proportionate distribution of rights to those parts. For Rossier, this makes Spinoza continuous with the tradition of political philosophy that suppresses disagreement in the interests of social order and consensus. Indeed, Spinoza's concept of political community is typically understood to be based on the agreement of similar beings with similar levels of rationality. Agreement describes how similar things are to one another in a metaphysical sense, For Spinoza, we agree when we are similarly determined by our essence to think and act from human nature. We disagree because we are differently determined to think and act by our material circumstances, and especially by the passions. Insofar as we agree, we rationally understand our interdependence on others, and we work together as parts of a whole. But insofar as we disagree, we tend to reject our (coughs) parthood and feel ourselves to be wholes, ...distinct from and unconnected to others. So the rejection of parthood for Spinoza is not emancipating, but isolating. In comparing Rancière and Spinoza in what follows, I will elaborate on these two senses of disagreement. First, we'll look at Rancière's sense of disagreement as a revolt against the political logic of parts and wholes... And second, we'll look at Spinoza's sense of disagreement as a divergence over what is differently experienced and felt. For both, disagreement involves the rejection of parthood and the rejection of inequality, and it generates bad social feeling. But whereas Ranciere sees in this potential for emancipation, Spinoza believes that it entrenches inequality and non-cooperation still further. So I'll finish by coming back to our current political climate and suggest that Spinoza's sense of disagreement better helps us to make sense of this. So the first section of the paper is on Rancière. Jacques Ranciere is a, for those who don't know him, a a contemporary French philosopher. Um, He he lives still, and uh, he's interested in the concepts and forces that have made political philosophy and contemporary politics what they are. In this sense, he performs a kind of genealogy upon political thought, following the path of such thinkers as Friedrich Nietzsche and Michel Foucault. This leads him to see the history of political philosophy as a suppression of politics starting with Aristotle. Democracy, according to Aristotle, gives power to those who, though free, are not men of wealth and standing and have no claim to goodness or excellence (coughs) in anything, quoting from Aristotle's Politics. Rossier interprets this origin story of democratic freedom as follows. After debt slavery was abolished in Athens, freedom had to be attributed to a group of people of no account. Debtors, that is people without wealth or civic virtue who were without value, henceforth had to be thought of as free. So these people who had no proper entitlement to freedom according to the prevailing law of the oligarchy, that is people who were not counted as part of the community were henceforth considered free. And this move forced a gap between wealth and domination. The wealthy who had previously ruled were now the part of the community distinguished only by their wealth, whereas the poor were the part distinguished by nothing but their freedom. This had two effects, according to Ranciere. First, the question arose of who legitimately governs. That's the question of Aristotle's politics. And second, the poor became a part whose distinguishing feature, freedom, is actually universal to all people. This allowed the poor to reject their parthood and to identify with the whole, to assert that they are the people. Thus, the mere people, those of no account, become the people in the sense of the community as such. A specific part, the part that has no legitimate part in the community, becomes identified with the whole community. The contentiousness of the excluded part claiming identification with the whole is what politics is for Ranciere. Before this event there is no politics, only domination and revolt. After this event politics exists in those moments where a part of society, a part that is normally excluded from political community, rejects its parthood and identifies with the whole. Jeanne de as mentioned earlier, rejected the notion that women are an includable or excludable part of the people and asserted that women are the people. Similarly, Rosa Parks, in refusing to give up her bus seat to a white person in segregated Alabama, rejected the social order that made black people a part of the whole that could be included or excluded from it. Rossier believes that political community is wrongly understood as a whole of parts, precisely because that understanding results in a part that has no part, a part of society that might be included or excluded, and that is actually marginalized and oppressed as a result. He claims that there is politics when there is a part of those who have no part. In other words, politics happens when those who are not counted, interrupt the social order by rejecting their parthood and asserting their equality to the whole. Thus, political community always carries connotations of inequality and of the potential for emancipation from it. Insofar as a community is political, it contains the inequalities and exclusions that give rise to disagreement. But in disagreement, the original anarchic equality of human beings is asserted. And this is the equality of anyone to anyone else. Ranciere's equality is not the arithmetical equality of the marketplace or of utilitarian ethics, which takes each person to be of equivalent value to and exchangeable with every other. Nor does Rancière uphold the geometrical equality that grounds Aristotle's view that each person is valued in proportion to his value for the community. Both these definitions refer equality to the calculation of value based on countable parts of a whole. For Rancière, countability is what makes possible the exclusion of parts. He wants to rehabilitate equality that suspends simple arithmetic, as he puts it, without setting up any kind of geometry. This equality, he says, is simply the equality of anyone at all with anyone else. Now, at first glance, this notion of equality looks quite simplistic. Indeed, it looks just like the arithmetical equality that Rancière claims to reject. However, Rossier understands equality to be embedded in human relationality rather than arithmetical equivalence. Specifically, equality is an aspect of our capacity to speak and understand. It is already present in the power of reasoned speech through which Aristotle defines the political animal. Our capacity to understand one another is presupposed in all human relations, including relations of dominance. For a master to subjugate a slave, the slave must be deemed capable of understanding the master's commands. This confers on them a basic equality of understanding. Indeed, Aristotle's definition of the natural slave is one who participates in the reasoning faculty so far as to understand, but not so far as to possess it. Equality of understanding is therefore already presupposed in the domination of the Athenian slaves and in all social orders. So a quote from Rossier's uh, text, Disagreement. He says, there is order in society because some people command and others obey. But in order to obey an order, at least two things are required. You must understand the order and you must understand that you must obey it. And to do that, you must already be the equal of the person who is ordering you. It is this equality that gnaws away at any natural order. Close quote. So this equality surfaces in the event of politics, the moment in which the part that has no part asserts that it is the people. The poor or disenfranchised assert an equality that pertains to them as beings who speak and understand, but that has been denied them as the part of society deemed unequal to political discourse. Equality is asserted as a dispute over wrongful exclusion from the order of political speech. From that moment of Athenian democracy, anyone at all can have his say, even someone with no qualification to do so. If anyone at all, even a freed slave is equal to anyone else, then all social orders are contingent. According to Ranciere, it is Hobbes who reveals the contingency of any social order when he claims that the natural relationship between human beings in the state of nature is a war of all against all, that is, a state of equality in which anyone might dominate or kill anyone else. To gain security, of course, that equality must be given up. The social order that replaces it could be anything at all, as long as it replaces natural equality with political inequality, that is the authority of some over others. The sovereign's principal anxiety is that the natural equality of anyone with anyone else could reassert itself at any time. But the inequalities in any social order are possible only on the basis of this natural equality. This equality cannot be granted by governments or enshrined in constitutions, because it is already there, in the mutuality of understanding and speech as the condition of possibility of any kind of governance. Now politics happens rarely for Ranciere because most of the time the social order, whatever it happens to be, prevails. When politics does occur, it is unsettling because disagreement is dissensus. That is, it is the disruption of the consensus the agreement, the contract of the social order, and the disruption of what he calls the community of sense experience. In other words, political events involve bad social feeling. They disrupt our feeling of community agreement and our sense experience of what it is to identify with either a part of the community or its whole. The assertion of equality disrupts identity, because disagreement involves disidentification with one's part and its assigned properties. Yet it is through these disruptions, these breaks in group identity, and bad feeling that equality is asserted. So, was Brexit a political event on Rancière's terms? Well, the mainstream view has portrayed Brexit as a revolt by members of an excluded part against the political system believed to cause their exclusion. But the Leave vote would be a political event on Ranciere's terms, only if it involved disidentification with that part and the assertion of equality as a common capacity for understanding amongst heterogeneous beings. Brexit is not political in Ranciere's sense for three reasons. First, even if we accept that there is an excluded part of society consisting of those left behind by politics, it is clear that the result was not caused exclusively or even primarily by this part. While two-thirds of voters in lower income groups voted to leave, 17.4 million votes cannot be accounted for without significant participation from middle and higher income groups. Second, even if we accept that there was an element of revolt against the status quo, it was not instigated by the excluded part itself, but made possible by the political party in power. Third, even if we accept that voting leave was an expression of dissatisfaction with political exclusion, it did not involve breaking with the identity of the part to assert equality with the whole. Instead, Brexit has involved an entrenchment of identities, of nation, class, and educational background, with each part proclaiming its parthood and asserting its superiority to the others. This is not politics on Ranciere's view. Brexit did not challenge the notion that people are or belong to parts of a whole, but rather reinforced it. (coughs) Brexit, for him, was an effect of what Ranciere calls policing, that is the exercises and exchanges of power that constitute the governance and management of people that serve to solidify the part-whole logic and that cause people further to identify with the part to which they have been consigned. And I understand from Ranciere's brief comments online about Brexit um, that his own view is, is quite close to the one that I've just set out. Now moving on to Spinoza and a slightly different sense of disagreement. It would be all too easy to use Spinoza to interpret Brexit as the effect of the irrationality of ignorant voters. Spinoza's view about the political potency of the masses is in many ways in line with others of the early modern era. Like Hobbes, he describes the masses as a threat to the stability and harmony of the state and this is largely due to their irrationality. People who have developed reason to a lesser extent have less understanding of what is good for them and what they should do to realize that good. Their actions are determined by incomplete knowledge and feelings caused by experience. People who lack rationality do not act according to what is truly in their own interest and the interest of the community, but according to what they erroneously imagine will be good for themselves. Their desires and emotions lead to conflict, and their lack of autonomy means they are easily led by others. All this detracts from community stability, as Spinoza explains. I'm now going to give a fairly long quote from Spinoza's theological political treatise. I'll let you know when it's finished. So he says, Anyone with any experience of the capricious mind of the multitude almost despairs of it as it is governed not by reason but by passion alone. It is precipitate in everything and very easily corrupted by greed or good living. Each person thinks he alone knows everything and wants everything done his way and judges a thing fair or unfair, right or wrong, to the extent he believes it works for his own gain or loss. From pride, they condemn their equals and will not allow themselves to be ruled by them. Envious of a greater reputation or better fortune, which are never equal for all, they wish ill towards other men and delight in that. There is no need to survey all of this here, as everyone knows what wrongdoing people are often moved to commit because they cannot stand their present situation and desire a major upheaval. How blind anger and resentment of their poverty prompt men to act, and how much these things occupy and agitate their minds. To anticipate all this and construct a state that affords no opportunity for troublemaking, to organize everything in such a way that each person of whatever character prefers public right to private advantage, this is the real task, the arduous work. No one has ever succeeded in devising a form of government that was not in greater danger from its own citizens than from foreign foes, and which was not more fearful of the former than the latter." That's the end of the quote. So Spinoza here portrays the irrational mob as a danger to the state. Yet his understanding of the dynamics of reason and unreason in politics is far more subtle than this characterization suggests. Rational and irrational are not polar opposites for Spinoza. Reasoning is one of two ways of thinking, which everyone does to some extent. When we reason, we have adequate ideas of things, and we deduce other adequate ideas from them. The other way of thinking, imagining, is based on fortuitous experience and includes remembering, anticipating, and dreaming. From experience, we have partial, confused, and inadequate ideas. Since we are affected by the things we experience, imagining goes along with passively feeling the affects, also known as the passions. We are made to feel the passions by our encounters with external things, and they cause us to react and behave in ways that stem only partially from our own nature. By contrast, reasoning and adequate ideas are tied to active feelings that follow wholly from our own nature and are therefore more autonomous. Now Spinoza stresses that everyone has some adequate ideas and everyone imagines and feels the passions. So nobody is purely rational or purely (coughs) imaginative. Our minds are a ratio of adequate to inadequate ideas, which changes according to our circumstances. Good circumstances, such as education, a supportive family, and a peaceful community, give us opportunities to enhance our reasoning, whereas bad circumstances, such as poverty, debt, deprivation, and violence prevent our rational development and cause us to feel stronger passions. The poor and disadvantaged are likelier to be determined by their passions and less likely to develop much reasoning. But there is no guarantee that the privileged will become highly or consistently rational. Reasoning requires effort and discipline. And powerful emotional events, such as bereavement or illness, can reduce our reasoning power. So people's circumstances determine their rational development, and as our lives change, our power of reasoning changes too. The multitude, therefore, is not simply an irrational mob. It is the people, each part of which is determined by different and changing proportions of imagining and reasoning. The problem is that developing a high level of rationality is difficult and rare, so most people in this society are determined most of the time by their own particular experiences and passions. And this leads to disagreement. Spinoza argues that insofar as men are subject to the passions, they cannot be said to agree in nature, and they can be contrary to one another. He claims that we agree in nature only insofar as we reason. So we will find agreement where there are high levels of reasoning and disagreement where there are low levels of reasoning and the passions are at their strongest. To understand the political significance of agreement and disagreement for Spinoza, we need to look at his metaphysical account of these terms. Spinoza believes that people have a common human nature essence or power he also believes that every individual from its essence strives to persevere in being what it is and to increase its power so to strive in this way is to seek one's advantage human essence determines us to strive for the continued existence and increased power of human nature in ourselves In striving for goods that are determined by human nature, we strive for goods that are common to all human beings, and we agree in nature. Thus, someone who is determined by his essence to seek his advantage also acts in the interests of others and agrees with them in nature. Only reasoning enables us to understand and act according to what is essentially advantageous to us. So, Here's a quote from Spinoza's Ethics, Part 4. He says, it follows that insofar as men live according to the guidance of reason, they must do only those things which are good for human nature. And hence for each man, that is, those things which agree with the nature of each man. Hence, insofar as men live according to the guidance of reason, they must always agree among themselves. The more rational people are, sorry, that was the end of the quote. The more rational people are, the better and more useful they are for one another. So politically, agreement means convergence on common goods and mutual aid towards achieving them, which leads to a stable, strong and harmonious society. Disagreement comes about when we seek our advantage from what we imagine and feel will lead to our betterment, rather than from what we rationally know to be good for our nature. Our striving for our essential advantage is derailed by what our different backgrounds and circumstances determine us to feel, desire, and do. This derailment is more powerful and long-lasting the less reason we have developed and the stronger our passions are. Our different circumstances cause us to differ in our affective responses and thus in our judgments about what is good and bad for us. So here's another quote from the Ethics. Spinoza says, different men can be affected differently by one and the same object and one and the same man can be affected differently at different times by one and the same object. Because each one judges from his own affect, what is good and what is bad, what is better and what is worse, it follows that men can vary as much in judgment as in affect. That's the end of the quote. To the extent that our experiences and feelings motivate our thinking and acting, what we strive for differs substantially. Through the different conditions of our lives and our different experiences, we can be contrary to each other and disagree in nature. Politically, disagreement is destabilizing because we do not converge on common goods or help each other to achieve them. Instead, each individual strives in a different direction for what appears to be good for her, frequently leading her to conflict with the striving of others. We all strive for uncertain goods which seem to reflect our own experience and satisfy our own feelings disagreement can cause us to desire the same scarce resource it can cause us to resent those who appear to stand in our way and to envy those who appear more successful disagreement can also cause destructive joyful passions The more we reflect on our differences from others, that is, the more we consider our own circumstances and striving to be specially distinctive, the more likely we are to affirm and love our own distinctiveness. And Spinoza thinks that that can have deleterious results. Here's another quote from The Ethics. Joy arising from considering ourselves is called self-love or self-esteem. And since this is renewed as often as a man considers his virtues or his power of acting, it also happens that everyone is anxious to tell of his own deeds and show off his own powers, and that men for this reason are troublesome to one another. From this it follows that men are by nature envious or are glad of their equals weakness and saddened by their equals virtue. For whenever anyone imagines his own actions, he is affected with joy and with a greater joy, the more he can distinguish them from others and consider them as singular things. So everyone will have the greatest gladness from considering himself when he considers something in himself which he denies concerning others, close quote. Disagreement can cause us to rejoice in what we perceive to be our unique characteristics and actions. This makes us feel other powerful passions, pull further apart from others, and reject or ignore our commonalities with them. All of this is contrary to our true advantage. Disagreement is irrational in that it arises from diminished reasoning and leads us to strive for what is not truly in our interest. Yet this is our primary mode of being. Most of us, most of the time, do not act in our own interest although that is exactly what we imagine and joyfully affirm ourselves to be doing. Spinoza thinks that when we agree in nature, we cohere as parts of a whole human community. When we disagree in nature, we revert to thinking of ourselves as sovereign wholes. And this too is underwritten by his metaphysics. Everything is both a whole and a part of various greater wholes, rising in compositional complexity to the whole of nature. A thing is considered a part of a whole insofar as it adapts its nature to those of other parts and they are in the closest possible agreement. It is considered a whole to the extent that it resists adaptation to other things and insofar as they are different from one another. What holds of physical bodies also holds of individuals in political communities. Insofar as we agree, we consider ourselves parts of a community whole. Insofar as we disagree, we reject our political parthood and consider ourselves wholes in our own right. Disagreement threatens the social order for Spinoza as for Ranciere. It causes bad social feeling. Unlike Ranciere, Spinoza does not see any potential for emancipation in disagreement. He sees it instead as the source of a dangerous narcissism. And this is particularly apparent when we examine the passions of pride and despondency. Spinoza describes these as the affects of comparison. They arise when people are driven to compare their achievements with those of others, to obsess over their uniqueness or inadequacy, and to feel themselves to be superior or inferior as a result. In other words, pride and despondency are how we feel our inequality to others. Spinoza defines pride as thinking more highly of oneself than is just out of love of oneself, and despondency as a sadness born of man's false opinion that he is below others. Both of these feelings tend to perpetuate themselves. The proud person seeks those who flatter her, loves herself all the more, and feels joy in this self-love. She is highly prone to envy, but rejoices in feeling that she is above others. The despondent person is very near the proud one, in that he too is prone to envy, and seeks to exalt over those even more despondent than himself. This leads him, perversely, to feel good about his own despondency. Out of all the passions that Spinoza describes, he singles out pride and despondency as indicating very great ignorance of oneself and very great weakness of mind. For the proud and despondent have no rational understanding of their true value to others, that is, their value as human beings who can agree in nature. They evaluate themselves in terms of their differences from others and take pleasure in their disagreement in nature." Whereas Rossier sees disagreement as the assertion of one's equality, Spinoza sees that it can involve the perverse affirmation of one's inequality. To disagree from pride or despondency is to assert the uniqueness of one's experience, affects, and actions, and to feel one's superiority or inferiority to be good and worthy of respect. These passions are likeliest to arise in societies that are highly unequal and that place value on individual achievement. Differences in power and material goods will cause pride and despondency to be keenly felt, while individualism leads people to imagine themselves as sovereign wholes with sole responsibility for their achievements or failures. This does not encourage us to agree in nature, but instead to seek sameness with others according to these non-essential characteristics that we take to distinguish us. We seek the sameness of those who feel similarly proud or despondent about their economic circumstances, their power or oppression, their educational achievement, religion or nationality. We seek the sameness of those who share our passions, who love what we love, and hate what we hate. For Spinoza, disagreement derails us from pursuing what is truly in our interest. Worse, it leads us to take pleasure in diverging from the common human good. Bad social feeling leads to bad social effects. It leads to entrenched groups that identify on the basis not of reason, but of shared passions and feelings those who are subject to strong passions of pride and despondency and who associate with others who feel the same are likely to reject what is in their rational interest and to take pleasure in doing so. Now, after the Brexit vote, some commentators noted that in places like Wales and the Northeast, places that had benefited from EU funds, citizens voted strongly against their own interests for leave. Similar comments are made about working-class Americans who voted against their own interests for Trump. Now, it is not clear whether the rational interest of human nature is better served by staying in or leaving the EU or by voting Republican or Democrat, and I'm not trying to make a case uh, for either side here. Spinoza's point is that For those on either side who are subject to strong passions, their rational interest is entirely obscure. They act against it not because they know what it is and choose otherwise, but because their actions tend towards what they feel and imagine to be best and are determined by forces external to them. I suggest that we should understand those forces in terms of inequality and how it makes us feel. One of the most striking correlations with voting patterns in both cases was voters' feelings about their life today and its flourishing in comparison to the past. 58% of Leave voters think life in Britain today is worse than 30 years ago. A staggering 81% of Trump supporters think life in the US now is worse than it was 30 years ago. 61% of Leave voters and 63% of Trump voters think life will be worse for the next generation. By contrast, just over 50% of Remain voters and 59% of Clinton voters think life will be better for the next generation, and 73% of Remain voters think life in Britain is better today than in the past. These attitudes reflect the feeling of one's own flourishing in comparison to how one imagines other human flourishing, whether one's point of comparison is one's own flourishing in the past, other people's better or worse flourishing in the present, or one's children's flourishing in the future. In short, these attitudes reflect the comparative affects of pride and despondency. These feelings are not restricted to the poor and the uneducated but are felt by voters across all income groups. One article that I read in The Guardian the day after the Trump victory explicitly blamed the pride and complacency of Clinton supporters. Um, The despondent nostalgia of older voters was obviously key in both contests as well. Spinoza's point is that the more strongly these affects are felt, the more strongly people will be determined to reject their parthood. As pride and despondency become greater, the greater is our weakness of mind, and the greater is our disagreement as we lose sight of any basis for adapting to others as parts of a broader whole. These effects occur particularly strongly where inequality is rife and individualism is valued. So it is not surprising that in two socially and economically very unequal countries, countries in which the ideology of individualism is held to be part of the national identity, people voted on the basis of their experience and feelings, and that people identified more with their own effectively similar groups than they did with a notion of the whole. The strong support for socially divisive measures against immigration, against women's and minority rights, and against greater environmental and human well-being is indicative of disagreement. Voters rejected their parthood of a larger whole and instead affirmed the sovereign wholeness of themselves and the group with which they share the same experiences and feelings. This reflects how the feeling of inequality can perversely lead to the affirmation of inequality and therefore its persistence. Those who won were determined by the experience and feeling that their lives were getting worse. This despondency quickly turned into the exaltation of victory, but on Spinoza's prediction, deeper despondency and more non-cooperation will be the outcomes. We in the UK and the US have experienced a great deal of bad social feeling over the past six months. There's no sign that this feeling will disappear, Ranciere and Spinoza give us different ways of understanding this feeling as a sign of disagreement. And both Ranciere and Spinoza give us worthwhile insights into the political force of disagreement. Ranciere shows us that consensus politics always involves inequality and exclusion, and that it is shot through with misunderstanding. There will always be breaks and disruptions that generate bad feeling. That reject the very logic of consensus and that cannot be neatly resolved in it. Rossier's view is that democracy develops and changes through these breaks in which our hidden equality is momentarily made present. Spinoza shows us that inequality has other emotional effects. It causes passions which lead people to break with the whole, to regard themselves as sovereign individuals, to fail to cooperate and perversely, as he puts it, to fight for their servitude as if they were fighting for their own deliverance. It is Spinoza, I think, who helps us to understand how we are all caught up in disagreement, even against our own best rational interests. Thank you very much for your attention.